Welcome to the OA the OA Light a Meeting uh, Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Colleen. Hi, everybody. My name is Colleen. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater. And Happy New Year. Um, thank you, Lucy, so much for asking me to be of service. It's always an honor um, and an opportunity. What a great way to sort of wrap up the year, for sure. Um, is this thing on, or is it just that thing? Oh, okay. All right. Just want to make sure. <laughs> um, okay, so I'll start with the number. So my abstinence date is August 4th, 2002. So I'm just over 20 years abstinence. Um, my top weight that I know was 311 pounds. I've been maintaining about 165, 170 pound weight loss for probably about 18 years now. Um, complete and total miracle. And I've asked um, her to pass around my pictures. Sorry for those of you who are listening won't see those. Um, and then I also, something else people on my podcasting won't be able to see, but um, is uh, my size 24 jeans that I barely fit into when I first came into these rooms. Um, and, uh, one of my, uh, my sponsor who I credit with saving my life said to me, she said, hold on to a piece of your clothing, you know? Um, and so I have those as evidence. The funny thing is, is that like, um, two legs fit into one. Actually, that's scary. Really. If I'm honest about it. And honestly, really the only reason it wasn't a 26 was because I wasn't willing to go buy a 26. It wasn't because 26 would have been a better fit. Um, I mean, that just tells you, it gives you an inkling of the length of, and the depth of my own denial about my disease. Um, by the time I came into the rooms, I was in my late 20s, and I had been probably practicing my disease. My earliest inclinations of it, although I'm not somebody who remembers their first compulsive bite, was probably like around age three. You know, um, I clearly had a pension for sugar. That was the only thing I sort of heard musings about in my family. I don't come from a family of compulsive overeaters. I don't come from a family of any obvious addictions. Um, apparently, there's some in the family history, um, but but nothing blatant. So I was the token addict in my family. And, you know, once in a while I'd hear, like, don't let Colleen get near the regular soda, which we'd have during holidays. You know, and of course I found it. Of course I found it. Um, and it was hiding, hidden in the back of the cabinet, and then, like, the six-pack was gone before the holiday came, and who knew where that happened, you know? But other than, I was never directly called out on my disease. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, I had certain inclinations as a young kid, because the other thing I remember about holidays is the kids were allowed to have, like, some alcohol with dinner. You know, it was like, ooh, we get to have some wine, like mom and dad. And, of course, I really wanted the cocktails my father was mixing, you know, because I go hard. So, um, but, you know, I couldn't ask for that. But I remember drinking the wine thinking, I think I like this a little too much. I probably should stay away. And for whatever reason, the sugar, which is definitely one of my main alcoholic foods, it's not the only one, um, it worked. And it worked 
until it didn't work. And if it had stopped working, I would have found other means. I really, like, if I could have shot it up, I would have. Apparently, that would have killed me much sooner. Um, instead, food just deadened my spirit, like, little by little by little by little, you know. And it really disconnected me um, from my body. It disconnected me from um, my soul in a lot of ways. And, you know, it provided this buffer. And then, of course... Then as the weight came on, the weight didn't start to really come on until I was around puberty. Um, and then that became an even better buffer because I didn't I didn't know, like, healthy boundaries. I didn't know how to say things like, mm, I'm not comfortable with that. Like, I didn't know I had the right to say things like that. Or I didn't even get that, like, my body was my own. And so, like, how you touched me or got near me was okay for me to say, you know what, can you keep your distance or don't touch me there? I didn't, none of that was in my um, wheelhouse. And so food and having extra weight is a nice way of pretending like you're totally okay with everything and then like simultaneously saying F off, you know, uh, leave me alone, don't get near me. And by the way, if you are touching me, I can't even feel it because I'm, I'm literally from like the neck down, I'm so cut off. And so food served all these various purposes. It kept me numbed out. It kept me disconnected from myself. Um, you know, there were there were moments, and I say moments of the pleasurability of it, but, like, you know, once you're past that first hit, like, it doesn't really matter after that. Like, I don't know how other more excessive drugs work if the, if the thing lasts longer. I don't really care to know. <laughs> but, you know, like, after, it was enough just to get that, kick in to, to stir up the allergy, you know, like they talked about in the doctor's, they talk about in the doctor's opinion, and then began the obsession, like, well, I need more of that, and more of that, and more of that, and that's not enough, and so it was a constant conversation about it never being enough, in fact, I was sort of joking around with a sponsee of mine on the phone the other day during our call, and saying that, like, I remember literally growing up thinking, what's the point of a medium, anything, like, I don't understand, like, everything needs to be large, extra large, super big gulp, like, why would you even bother with something small? Like, I, I never understood that. And and I didn't get how people could, um, like, have a bite of something and then, like, leave it there. And then eventually that just became annoying. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, my God, what is that? You know, and I'll never forget the first time I was listening to these um, recovered alcoholics talk about how, They'd be with friends, and their friends would, like, slowly sip at a drink and then, like, leave half the cup empty. And they were like, oh, my God. You know, and I laughed because, well, I never thought that about alcohol. But, like, you damn straight I thought that about food. Like, you'd have two bites of your piece of cake and then throw it out. <gasps> Do you have any idea what that does to me? Oh, my God. You know, so clearly I'm an addict with food, right? And, and I say all that to say that, like, you know, this program – has to say that it has saved my life would be like just it seems like such a small thing to say although it isn't um because i very much value my life but it, it not only does does the big book and living the steps give me like a plan or a design for living but like they say in the big book works in rough going because that's what i need to be honest with you because life is rough i don't know if you've noticed life is rough and I was always using food to buffer me from life, and I didn't, I didn't really get that. Like, you know, there, there's no thing that says, like, it's all going to be, like, 
rainbow and sunshines from here on out. You know, it was, it was funny. I was listening to um, some discussion this morning on a podcast or whatever, and, and it wasn't programmed, but they were saying, yeah, like our brain just likes to tell us, like, it's going to be a great day, and the whole day is going to be great. I don't know that I know of any day where the entire, like from start to finish, right? You know, I mean, I definitely have good days, don't get me wrong. But, like, that's just it. Like, life moves in ways. Everything around me, from how nature works, things are cyclical, you know, it goes up and down, it's dark, it's night. Like, nothing in the in the natural universe tells me that, like, it's a straight line, right? And that was always sort of my goal, to, like, like just even keel all the time. And then I was like, oh, that's kind of like when you flatlined, which means you're dead, you know? And that's really what I was doing in my disease, And, you know, there was a lot of of rough things, um, probably more than, like, some young kids should have to deal with, perhaps. But, you know, I certainly wasn't alone in that. There's lots of people who have those kind of experiences. And, you know, but I didn't have any tools, so food was my only tool. And I'm really, really grateful that it worked, and I'm really, really grateful that it worked as long as it did. Because if it hadn't, like I said, I would have sought out faster, you know, um, worse substances, people, things, etc. And um, so when I, I came into the rooms, or as I like to say, I waddled into the rooms at over 300 pounds. And 311 is the top weight I know of. I mean, I just like, that was the last number I remember seeing on a doctor's documentation. Wang was not, my thing was not the least bit interested in actually knowing the number. I remember growing up, and when I was growing up, they had these scales, this before digital scales, where had, they had this, like, bar that would move, and then then it was the one that would move from, like, the 50 to the 100 pound. And I remember literally just, like, crossing my fingers into it. was like, please don't let it go past this one. Don't let And, of course, every time it went past, I was like, oh, crap, you know. And I could never diet for very long. I went on one, I think one time I successfully dieted in my life. It was um, towards the end of my freshman year in high school, and I ordered, I got my dad to order me some, some thing in the back of a teen magazine or whatever. And I literally, well, it works probably because I was sort of starving myself. <laughs> and I lost almost 40 pounds. And then two very um, particular things happened. One was that I, um, I had a plateau and I didn't know what that was. All I knew is I wasn't eating the things I wanted to be eating, you know. And I wasn't losing weight anymore. And then the other thing was is that um, I had an experience where um, I was hanging out with one of my best girlfriends. She was over at my house, and her dad came to pick her up. And, you know, he came in, he said hello, whatever. And I saw him look me up and down, and he goes, wow, you look great. Completely innocent, totally appropriate, but inside I went, And I didn't know that at the time. It's only, of course, there's all sorts of things that you come to understand later. So clearly there was a sense of, like, safety and now being noticed, right? So, and what's really interesting to me, because recovery is the gift that keeps on giving. And, you know, even in this last, like, six months for me, I got a job promotion. And I'm a much more visible role in the company that I work for. And it just unearthed all these tendrils of, like, what it means to be visible and to be held accountable on a greater scale. And, and I'm, I'm good with accountability. Like, I built this program, literally taught me how to be a person in my work. Like, learning 
about committing my food and sticking to my commitment, I learned that I can't say something and then do something else. Like, it doesn't work that way. It's lack of integrity. Now, if you had asked me before a program if I had integrity, I'd be like, of course. You know, and meanwhile, I'm lying to myself all the time. You know, like, oh, it's just a little bit, or what's it, it doesn't count because I'm standing up, or like some, <laughs> some kind of ridiculous notion, or like, um, you know, even just the idea that like I'd lay in bed at night and then like, run my hands all around my body and go, God, please make me skinny. as like I was going to wake up in the morning and be skinny. I mean, first of all, that would be stark even mad. Like, I would go crazy if that happened. Like, I would just be like, what? You know? But um, anyway, so, you know, these these elements of, of, I guess, work, one could say, that we do in our lives that I think of as, like, sort of being our assignments here on Earth, you know, um, continue to evolve and grow. And the difference for me is that um, because I live in recovery to the best of my ability, meaning I live in 10, 11, and 12, and I use the steps as my guidelines, it means that I'm not afraid of the challenges when they surface, that I actually strangely find myself being grateful when they show up. Like, oh, wow, okay. And for me, it's, it's directly proportional to the relationship that I have with the higher power. And that relationship, you know, actually began for me at a very young age, but, but up until I came into program, like, God had, which is one of the names I have for it, had nothing to do with my food and nothing to do with my body. Because, by the way, don't you know there's children in Africa who are starving? So clearly God's got bigger things than what goes on my plate or in my mouth. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, I wanted nothing to do with my body. So why would God want, you know, my body was the enemy. So... You know, if I, it was because I was fat that my life was a mess. It was because I was fat that I didn't have a board. It was, you know, all because of, mind you, I'm the one stuffing all this food, and I wasn't an idiot, but, like, it never computed because that was my survival. Like, that was my drug. That was my lifeline, you know? And so um, when I came into the rooms and... Um, you know, by then I was pretty beaten down. We're talking about years of, like, praying to God, can I just not be fat anymore? Like, and really just not getting, like, how that, that you know, like, I mean, what, I mean, what was God going to do? Colleen, stop eating the Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, like, you know, that never happened. Um, you know, and it's like I needed um, – my sponsor referred to it as me being agnostic as to application. Like, I had this great faith and this belief. But the other piece about it is that I kept looking for this being or whatever greater than me to rescue me from life. And it was probably a few years into recovery. You know, my head had cleared from some of the sugar, um... Because believe me, there's a lot of it in the body, especially a big body, if you've been pummeling it in for years. Um, and it took a while to kind of, I really believe, to get, like, out of my system. And I finally realized that I didn't, I was no longer looking for a power greater than myself to rescue me from life. What I needed was a power greater than myself that could stand there with me to, to be my back. Um, to um, hold me when I felt like I was going to fall, not to swoop me out of whatever the situation was, um, but to be able to show me that, like, I don't have to abandon me 
you know, that, that God's not going to abandon me because I can, I can walk through this, you know, um, that it is an opportunity for my growth. Now, not that I'm interested always in growing, um, you know, my sponsor in my beginning years used to say to me, Colleen, life's a gift or a chance to grow. And I was like, oh, go away, you know, like, and my sponsor now say, well, so, you know, because I'll be like, yay, another growing experience. She goes, well, you know, you know, you're done when you're dead. And I was like, all right, already, you know, like, got it. Um, but that's just it. Like, that is the gem of living in the steps. And again, this, this comes out of, like, all the beginning steps that go along the way. I mean, those welcome to the newcomer and... You know, you're probably thinking, okay, that's really all lovely, lady, but what does any of this have to do with me not sticking my face into a cheesecake or something or whatever your thing is? So the thing is, is that, like, going through those painstaking moments of, like, saying, okay, I'm for today, I'm not going to eat sugar, or for the next hour, I'm not going to eat any sugar, or, you know, whatever the thing is, and and those alcoholic foods began to surface more and more so the longer I was in recovery. So when I first came in, I grabbed a sponsor because I was a very, excuse me, a very good rule follower. Like, I was a school teacher at the time. You know, I was all about, like, meeting people's approval. So, like, following rules is a thing you do when you want people's approval in general. And, um... So you said, get a sponsor, start working the steps, establish an absence. And I was like, okay. So I, I grabbed this woman, like, my second weekend. And she basically told me what her absence was, which was three meals a day, nothing in between, two snacks. And I was like, okay, sure, sounds good. Like, what did I know, right? So in the beginning then, it was three meals a day. It was probably, with like, three binges a day, to be quite honest with you. Because, but it had a beginning, a middle, and end. Like, I remember I would sort of look at the clock and be like, okay, within an hour, I need to be done. Now, it never took me an hour to eat. Um, but, you know, that was the beginning. And so having those times in between meals when I'd be like, oh, my God, when's lunch? You know, um, and, you know, picking up the book or praying or writing. Writing has always been a huge, huge tool for me. And, and being in that discomfort helped sort of build me to then, you know, about five months in, or whatever, my sponsor, God bless her, I mean, how she even did this without thinking, I'd be like, um, or maybe she was just willing to take the chance of saying, you might want to look at sugar, you know, how would you feel about no sugar for 30 days? And for whatever reason, like, my mind was open enough or I was less resistant or whatever, because honestly, at that point, all I was doing was calling in my food at the end of the day and say what I had eaten, because I was so afraid that you were going to already start constricting my food that I couldn't commit to you. That came later. So, you know, these are like baby steps that I had to make. So about six months in, I stopped eating sugar, and I just agreed to it for the 30 days. And at the end of the 30 days, I had some. But what happened in that moment was I felt it, like, in going through my body, and it felt disgusting. And I had this moment of, like, oh, my God. I mean, I just was, like, had, I guess, sort of a first apology to my body and be like, I'm so sorry. I had, I had no idea that this is really what this felt like. I mean, pummeling so much of this stuff into my body over so many years, and I just was like, I don't want to do that anymore, you know? And that really, and then from that point forward, I didn't 
um, you know, don't have blatant or some people call it recreational sugar. So I always think of sugar like having a party or something. But anyways, uh, I guess party in the mouth or something. Anyway, so, um, you know, and that then began another level of, of clarity and, and things opening up so that I became more and more. Because let me be honest, you can eat a lot of things that don't have sugar in them that are still not going to get into a healthy body weight, you know. And at this point, I'd lost probably about... 25 pounds, although I really, like, I'm not kidding, I'm so disconnected. My sponsor has, like, she looked at me and she said, Colleen, your pants are falling off. You might want to get some new pants. And she's like, have you gotten on the scale? And I was like, oh, God, no, why would I get on a scale, <laughs> you know? So I had to go to her house because I didn't own a scale. Um, and then for my first several years of recovery, eventually I, when I started working with my third sponsor, she had me weighing once a week, and I went to a place to go weigh. Like, I didn't own a scale for a really long time. Not because I was afraid that um, I would keep taking it out or anything like that. That was, not, was I would never take it out. I would, like, there was something about having to go somewhere and other people expecting to see me kind of thing. And... Um, Anyway, so um, so that became sort of the next phase, and at that point, I'd ha- um, I'd had about a year of abstinence, and I'd been off sugar for about six months, I guess. And I remember being in a women's meeting, and um, they would read from the big book, and um, the woman was reading from the doctor's opinion, and she she read the line about the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And I was like, hmm. And I just had this moment of, like, looking at myself and my body, looking at the steps around the wall on the wall in the meeting I was in, and going, okay, so this is Overeaters Anonymous. Like, I'm either doing this or I'm not doing this. Like, I'm still carrying this extra weight. And it was that point that, you know, it talks about in Step 5 that if you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So I had begun to kind of work the steps, but I was sort of circling the drain on Step 4, as um, many of us do. But my head really wasn't, like, I didn't, it wasn't totally connecting. But I saw enough of, and this is such the miracle of the program, that, like, I saw you people in the rooms. I saw people in years of abstinence, months, days of abstinence. And I was like, they have something, and I want that thing, you know? And um, and I knew that I had found sort of a place that felt safe. And I remember that feeling really early on, and that was another really big key for me, that within the first month or something, I felt like this is a safe place. Now, I didn't consciously think of it that way, but given that I had spent most of my life feeling really unsafe, that was a pretty big deal, you know. And so um, at that point, when I, I reached that moment of making a decision, I really was willing to go to any lengths. And um, I ended up switching sponsors. And that's really when I just sort of really cleaned up my food a lot. That's when I started committing my food. Um, she had me up my meetings. She really drilled me through the steps in the big book and in the A, 12 and 12. And, um, you know, I had to commit my food ahead of time. I had to get on the scale once a week. That was the only one I pushed back on. She's like, you have to get on the scale once a week. And I was like, once every two weeks? She's like, once a week. I was like, fine. Because um, I hated that number because that number was a measurement of, like, my failures over the years. Like, if as long as I didn't get on that, I didn't really know, you know, and I've learned over the years, like, the disease lives in the vagueness. And so the clearer and more precise I am, 
especially when it comes to committing my food and the number that's on the scale, um, the better my life is. Because it's the, otherwise it's me just trying to control it, like make it look a certain way or something like that. And, um, I mean, don't get me wrong, like when I began to really look at my food and clean it up, and she asked me this really simple question. She said, well, she said, you look at your food and you say, is this weight losing, weight maintaining, or weight gaining? She's like, and if you want to lose weight, then you eat weight losing food. I mean, like, brilliant, right? Like, never occurred to me. <laughs> Why would it? I mean, can't you just, like, eat a bunch of stuff and, like, hope and pray it doesn't show up on your body? That's how I lived my life, you know? So, um... That meant a lot of discomfort, you know, because I thought for sure I was going to die between breakfast and lunch. I mean, you know, and this stuff doesn't necessarily go, well, I'm a compulsive reader, so I can still have days when I'm like, I eat my breakfast and I'm like, oh my God, when's lunch? <gasps> you know, because that's just how my head works. It's probably that I'm having a lot of feelings, right? And I, there's feelings, by the way, I've learned, like, are also in the body, so, ooh. You know, right? So, like, even if I'm not conscious of them, like, there's stuff going on. So, you know, I've learned how to be a little bit more embracing of discomfort, you know. And, again, so much of the key is not having to do it alone, you know. Like, I remember when um, it became clear that there was a food that might need to go on to my abstinence. And this always occurred with, like, discussion, writing. This, certain foods I wasn't like, all right, you know, and I've never found it helpful to just, whatever, if I, if I wasn't there yet, because otherwise there's a part of me that's trying to fight it the whole time, and when I'm fighting myself, I'm losing, even if I'm winning, so, um, I remember we began to talk about it, and she said to me, she said, you know what you do, she said, when you go into a meeting, you turn to a friend of yours at the meeting, and you say, I, you know, there might be stuff that comes up for me, can I just grab your hand if I get uncomfortable, <laughs> and she's like, and that's how you navigate through it, that, and like, me committing to her that I wasn't going to have that, you know, for breakfast, and I wasn't going to, even though I hadn't, it wasn't on the plan, but it was just like that extra thing, and had to do to ensure that, like, I didn't try and come up with creative ideas. Like, my head didn't, my disease didn't go, well, you know, you could make it like this, you know. And um, so these are all tools and things that I learned over the years. And what do you know, like, I became a better employee. I became a better daughter. I became a better sister. Um, I became a better auntie. I have, I can't believe my... Oldest nephew is graduating from high school this year, and I remember when he was born, <laughs> thinking he's never gonna know big Auntie Colleen, you know. And I was like, wow, you know, um, and he never has, you know, and um, and that's pretty amazing to me, you know. It's just such a miracle, such a miracle. Um, and, you know, the other thing that, that was super, super helpful for me um, that my sponsor really drilled into my head was she said, it's not that you're not going to have problems, you're just going to have a different set of problems. And that was really vital for me because I didn't walk around thinking like, well, once I get skinny, everything's going to be great. Because let me tell you, 
<laughs> you just become a skinny person with problems. Like it doesn't, it's not, you know, or challenges or whatever kind of nicer word you want to put out. Sometimes they just feel like, sorry, I'm not supposed to cuss. Um, they're, you know, a bunch of problems. So, yeah. But again, you know, I keep going back to the steps and I'm, I continually marvel at the simplicity that it directs me toward. And that, to me, is very much how my higher power shows up, is in the simplest answer, in the simplest, you know, even in, like, my daily prayer and meditation time, which was, again, not something I did because I thought, this would be a good idea. I mean, it is talked about in Step 11. But way before I got to Step 11, my sponsor literally said to me, she said, you have to pray and meditate every day and do it before you call me in the morning because I don't want to talk to your disease. And I was like, okay, you know. And um, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't meditate. Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't know how to say it. Like, the prayer thing I was okay with, but I was like, I try and meditate and I fall asleep. And she goes, you get a timer, you set it for two minutes, and you sit your butt in a chair. And she's like, and if you fall asleep, you fall asleep, the timer will wake you up. And I was like, okay. Like, just make it super simple. And so... Two minutes evolved into five minutes to me going to, like, places to learn how to meditate and, like, different forms of meditation. And, you know, it talks about in the big book and Bill's story, it says that, you know, in order to, um, you know, survive the trouble spots ahead, that we have to perfect and enlarge our spiritual life. And there was something in that that really <laughs> jumped out at me, and I went, okay, so I have to clearly widen... And, and deepen this understanding I have of, of God, you know, and of higher power. And, you know, I find myself, like, taking workshops or going on shamanic hikes or, you know, and it was just, it just really began to open my understanding. And, you know, it talks about in the big, that the purpose of the book and the purpose of the steps is to get us to connect with a power greater than ourselves. So that continues to be sort of the guiding post. And any kind of um, spiritual endeavor or path or whatever that I come across, the 12 steps are my barometer always. Like, does this line up with the 12 steps? And if it doesn't, then it's probably not a fit for me. Because this, more than anything, this spiritual path has been clearly the instructions that I needed that I didn't have. And I'm so glad that they're here. And the fact that they came from two drunks who were just trying not to drink again is, I mean, like, perfect, you know? Like, people whose lives were messy, you know, and wanted a way for them to be a little less messy. And that sounds about right for me. Because I'm not looking for somewhere. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I have moments of feeling like I've been rocketed to the fourth dimension, but I don't live there, right? Like, I need what they refer to as, like, householder spirituality. Like, spirituality that works when one of my staff members is irking the you-know-what out of me. Like, because she's doing that thing, you know. Which, by the way, because of the 10-step principle that tells us that every time I'm disturbed by a person, place, or thing, there's something wrong with me. Now, I had to alter that language a little because I spent most of my life thinking about how wrong and bad I was. So I just noticed that I'm the one who's disturbed, right? So the disturbance is with me. So really what I get to is like when, when that's happening, when this person is showing up like this and doing this thing that's irritating me, I know that she's not sitting at home going, I'm just going to do this to really irritate Colleen because, no, she's not thinking of me at all. She's just doing herself, you know? And I'm the one who has a problem with it, right? So I get to look at, thank you, um, at, like, what's going on within me. And it's usually some story that my head is telling me about me, like how I'm, 
experiencing this or whatever it is. And that's where I turn to writing. I turn 